Let's come to God in prayer. Father, in the way that I speak, in the way that we listen, may it be a pleasing act of worship unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, how many of you have met somebody very important before? Uh, it can be a prime minister, chief minister, some celebrity or some sort. God, uh, as in at least in the same space. Uh. Okay, not, not many. Uh. Okay, um, for me, the chief minister of Penang, I don't know whether I'll consider super celebrity. <laughs> uh, okay, the most famous, uh, the, the biggest deal of a person that I've met, uh, or at least been... Uh, in the same place uh, in person before uh, was in 2016 uh, that there was a, a conference okay in Manila in Philippines that I went to uh, and it just so happens that this is a conference where sparks first flew between myself and my wife uh, and so it was at this conference that I got to take a photo with uh, somebody named Ravi Zacharias. He just didn't know. Uh, he didn't know he was in the photo. But uh, for those of you who don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, uh, he is a, a very well-known Christian apologist who passed away in 2020, among other developments. If you know, you know. But back then, he was one of the most famous, most prominent figures in modern Christianity. Uh, and he just happened to be there, okay, at this conference. He was one of the keynote speakers at this global discipleship conference. Uh, Track sent a few people to go and attend. Lah. And so for this, for, for some reason, one of the days, we were ushered into the VIP area for lunch. Uh, and, you know, Ravi Zacharias is having lunch just one table away next to us, okay? And throughout the whole time that he was there, I noticed people were constantly looking at him. Okay, so I, I probably can't tell uh, so clearly in this picture, but if you try and zoom in, you know, you see carefully the faces, uh, they're all like looking at him, right? And they're all trying to find a, a way to talk to him. They're trying to find a way to take a picture with him. Uh, even though I wasn't sitting facing him, I was constantly aware that he was there. <laughs> until he finished his lunch and he finally left. And then instantly there was a difference in the room. You could tell that everyone uh, went back to focusing on their food. Uh, general conversation, the volume increased, and then uh, people who were lingering around because he was there, they, they left. Okay, so because Ravi Zacharias was considered an important person at that point, his presence was a big deal to the place that we were in and to the people who were there. And so in a similar way, when Solomon built a temple for God, the reason why it was such a big deal was not because of the building, not because of the furnishings or the gold that was covering everything or the priests who were in there ministering. God's presence was what made the temple and whatever happened there such a big deal. And so the takeaway for today is that we worship God where He is present. Okay, very simple. 
if we forget everything, there's a one thing to remember. We worship God where He is present. Now, last week, we saw how Solomon received wisdom from the Lord as well as riches and honour. And this is near the beginning of his reign. The next major milestone is he builds or he begins work on the building of the temple of the Lord. If you remember from last year, our series last year on 2 Samuel, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And God said no. <laughs> okay? And he, one, one of the reasons that was given was because uh, David had been involved in too much war with the surrounding nations, especially the Philistines. And so God told David his son would be the one who would build his house. Okay? And so now, in 1 Kings chapter 5, all the way until chapter 9, the temple is finally built. Now, I'm not going to go into detail into all these chapters. So, um, we're actually covering about three, three to four chapters worth of content today. But I won't go into detail uh, because there's, there's just too much, okay? Just know that Solomon began work of the, on the temple. After the temple is built, the cloud that symbolized God's glory filled the temple so the people knew that God's presence was there, right? And then after that, uh, Solomon... Uh, this great prayer of dedication, they, they celebrated, they offered many, many sacrifices and it was like this huge thing, right, where God was glorified, you know, upon the completion of the temple. Now, the design for the temple in terms of its dimensions actually very similar to the tabernacle. Okay, you remember the tabernacle from Exodus, right? When God told them, uh, you, you build this structure according to these uh, specifications, a portable one that they can carry along with them and, and set up whenever they need, and it symbolizes God's presence with them. So the temple has very similar design and, and, and dimensions as the tabernacle, just on a much larger scale, okay, about four times larger. So if you look at our sanctuary, roughly... Roughly about this size plus the, the reception area, maybe slightly bigger. Uh, th that's roughly the size of the temple that Solomon built, but much higher, about four stories high. Okay, so much, much higher, uh, just to give you an idea. Now, the design consisted of three main sections. So uh, you won't be able to read the text, but basically, this is the shape and the... the the design is outside, you see, uh, where there's like flat land, that is the outer courts, okay? Inside, there are two sections. The one towards the back, the left, is known as the Holy of Holies, and then the one uh, nearer towards the entrance to the outer courts is the Holy Place, okay? So you have three main sections of the temple. Outer courts, Holy Place, Holy of Holies. I won't go into detail, but quickly, just quickly. In the outer courts, some of the main components, in the outer courts, there was a huge altar for burnt offerings. So you see on the upper right-hand corner, this thing doesn't have a laser, does it? Eh, got, okay. Ta-da, this one. This is the altar, okay? Uh, that's where the sacrifices are 
are made, the animal sacrifices. There was also a huge basin known as the Bronze Sea. So this one, okay? It's a very big basin, a huge cup of water, uh, 11,000 gallons, and it's being supported by many, many lambu, okay? <laughs> uh, bronze lambu, right? And then there were smaller basins, yeah, uh, used for ceremonial washing. Within the holy place, which is this area here, within the holy place, there were 10 golden lampstands that symbolized the light and the life that God brings. So, five on one side, five on the other side. And then, there was the golden table of the bread of the presence. Somewhere here, okay? Uh, and every day, there'll be fresh bread, okay? So, the, you know how when you walk in a shopping mall, got famous Amos smell and you feel like, wow, right? Uh, so, the priests were always having this smell of fresh bread every day. And that symbolized the provision of God. And then there was the golden altar of incense over here, okay? And that symbolized the prayers of the people rising to heaven. And then at the holy place, before you enter in the Holy of Holies, there is a very, very huge curtain, a veil. Uh, this one, okay? It's a, a veil or a curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And this curtain was huge, it was long, it was tall, it was very, very heavy. Okay, then we come to the Holy of Holies. So it's like the innermost place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence, uh, would be kept. And God's presence was uh, resting on the cover where the cherubim, the, the angels, had uh, wings that were outstretched. Okay, so this was known as the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And so this holy of holies, this one, uh, no one can enter except the high priest once a year just for the day of atonement. Okay, so that's just a very quick overview over uh, what the temple looked like, what was inside. I want to draw out for us three things that we can learn, not just from chapter 9, but the whole building of the temple, okay? Uh, firstly, the purpose for the temple, okay? The purpose for the temple. Secondly, the preparation for worship. Preparation for worship. Thirdly, the progression of God's presence, okay? The progression of God's presence. So, three Ps. Easy peasy, yeah? Okay, so first P. The purpose for the temple. Now, what was the temple for? Well, the primary purpose for the temple was probably for Israel to worship God, but we'll look at that in a bit more in detail later. Lah. Before that, I'd like us to look at some of the things that the temple symbolized, what it stood for. Okay? Firstly, it was symbolic of God's presence among His people. Now, if you put yourself in the shoes of the people in those ancient times, the ancient Israelites, they didn't have the same knowledge, the same things that we know today. They didn't have access to the Bible, okay? They didn't have sermons to listen to. They couldn't go and search Wikipedia, okay? So they, they didn't have the same sort of confidence that we have about many things that we know about God. 
So for example, something as simple as God listens to our prayers. We know that for sure. But if you put yourself in the, the, the ancient Israelite shoes or sandals, uh, they probably, not all of them would have had this same kind of assurance that God listens to their prayers or that He was even there with them. They were still learning about who God was and what He's like. Okay, and as they are learning, the scriptures are being written. Okay? So we have a huge advantage. We can refer to the scriptures. Oh, we know so much about God. God is like this, God is like that. He likes, he wants this, he wants that. As the ancient Israelites lived through the Bible, period, they were still learning a lot of that. And so the temple was one way that they would know that God was present with them and that they can actually access him they, can, they know where to find Him. They know how to reach Him. Now, it's important to note that the temple was just one place that God was present to His people. Okay? It's just one place. But it was a place they knew that, okay, uh, God's name is there, meaning His person. Uh, uh, his eyes are there, so He is watching, He's listening they, know, they knew they could find him there. But the temple was just one place where God was present to his people. Solomon himself acknowledges God's presence is not constrained by the temple. He says, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much more this structure that I've built? And Acts chapter 17, verse 24, also makes it very clear. God is not only found in the temple, right? So God is omnipresent. Say it with me. Omnipresent. Omni, all, present, present. Lah. Okay? So present all the time, everywhere. God is everywhere all the time. But for the Israelites at that time, still learning about what God is like, the temple was where they knew with absolute certainty His presence is there. Okay? So it was symbolic of His presence with them. Uh, secondly, the temple was symbolic of God's holiness. Now, when we say that something is holy, it means it is, literally, it is set apart from other things. It is distinct, it's special, okay? So, uh, a quick example, a bride buys a wedding dress for her coming wedding. Before the wedding, she doesn't wear this dress to go and makan outside. She doesn't wear this dress to go and do house chores, sweep the floor, mop the floor, right? She reserves it, she sets it apart for the wedding. And after the wedding, she probably doesn't use the dress again, lines. I don't know, gives it to her sister or sells it off or something. Um, but it is special, set apart, different from everything else. And so the temple was symbolic of God's holiness. By having those places that were distinct, separated from the rest of what was normal. And so especially the holy place and the holy of holies, special, distinct. So while God was present among his people, he was accessible to his people. At the same time, he was inaccessible to those who were not holy. So you think about it, huh? 
God was accessible to His people, but if they were not holy, He was not accessible to them. Okay? Now remember the bronze sea and the basins for ceremonial washing in the outer courts? They were symbolic of the need to be purified, that even the priests need to purify themselves before coming before God in this holy place. And so we see in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus cleans the temple. He drives out with a whip uh, all these money changers that were basically turning the, the outer courts of the temple into a marketplace. And so he wasn't just flipping out for no reason. Okay, he, he had a concern for holiness in the temple. That's what motivated him uh, to... That's why we call it cleansing of the temple, right? Now, although God's holiness meant that he, he was not easily accessible by most people during Solomon's reign, uh, when Jesus died, the huge heavy, long, tall curtain, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, tore from top to bottom, and specifically top to bottom because it was too high for men to go up there and eh, okay, or at least without a, a huge scaffolding or whatever. And so it was symbolic that God himself was removing this separation, this barrier from coming before him through sacrifice of Jesus. So all the Jews who knew about this, this curtain being torn knew that this is a very clear message. The sacrifice of Jesus immediately makes God accessible to all who believe in Jesus. And that's why we can approach Him at any time. We don't have to go through all the animal sacrifices. We don't have to go through all the priests. We can come straight to Him. He is still a holy God, but we can come straight to Him because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So the temple was symbolic of God's holiness. Thirdly, the temple was symbolic of God's mercy. One major component of worship at the temple was for the people to ask for God's forgiveness so they can be made holy again. And so the high priest, the priest, would have to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as the sins of the people, especially during the Day of Atonement. That one day in the year, when sacrifices are offered for all of Israel, not just the things that they did wrong, eh, that they knew that they did, they did wrong, but even for the things they don't know they do wrong, the unintentional sins. And all these sins will be placed on the head of a scapegoat and released into the wilderness and all that. So the temple is where the people were assured of forgiveness of their sins through the sacrificial system. So they were not stuck in a situation where uh, I seen already, Alama, I'm doomed forever. There was a way for them to experience God's forgiveness through this sacrificial system. So it, the, the temple represented, its, it was symbolic of God's mercy to the people. Now there's actually a larger symbolism of God's mercy based on where the temple is located. Uh, and Second Chronicles uh, chapter 3, verse 1, specifies the temple was built on Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac before God told him, stop, chop, uh, you, you sacrifice this ram instead. Right? And 
not just the place where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, this was also the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. Now, if you hear this word, Arauna the Jebusite, it sounds a little familiar. It's because it's from one of our sermons last year in 2 Samuel. Towards the end of 2 Samuel, David sinned by ordering a census and the people of Israel were experiencing God's judgment in the form of a plague. An angel was uh, uh, giving them a plague in the form of ju- uh, to, to judge Israel for David's sin. And it was at this place, the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, where God had mercy on the people and he instructed the angel to stop, stop the judgment. Okay? And so David would later buy that place, this threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite, he would buy that place in order to build an altar to the Lord. And this, this location, the same place where Abraham would, uh, uh, was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, the same place where God told the angel to stop the judgment, this is where the temple would be built. So the location of the temple had history that reminded people about God's mercy. And the regular sacrifices at the temple would remind the people regularly about how something else, all the lumbu lumbu and the biri biri and all that, they were the ones that were paying the price for their sins. So the temple itself, through all these sacrifices, points forward to the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Okay? Not just the tabernacle, but also the temple. Uh, it points forward to the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the ultimate example of God's mercy to mankind. So the existence, the operation of the temple would teach and remind God's people about these three things. His presence, His holiness, His mercy. But of course, one primary purpose of the temple was for worship. And that's what building the temple was preparing for, which is our second P, a preparation for worship. Now, the temple was not built in order to be a monument or a museum, just something to look at, right? It was meant to be inhabited, not just by God, but also by His people in worship. Now, to put it simply, worship is giving God glory and honor. Okay? In Solomon's time, worship meant animal sacrifices at the temple. For us today, giving God glory and honor, uh, we, we worship through singing, we worship through praying, we worship through giving of our offering, right? That's, that's what we do on, on Sunday. These are some ways that we express worship to God. Just some ways. Because worship is not just these things, not just the things that we do in church, the singing, the praying, the offering, and the listening to God's word. Paul tells us, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay, so if you ever want an instruction manual, on how do we worship God in the New Testament is this verse, okay? That our true and proper worship, our, our 
bodies offered as a living sacrifice. Notice he says, living sacrifice, not dead sacrifice. The animals that were sacrificed, they were dead, right? But our whole lives, the continuing living of our lives, are meant to bring glory to God. And so, what kind of lives we live directly affect what kind of worship God is receiving from us. Okay, so just think about that. What kind of lives we live directly affects what kind of worship God is receiving from us. Now, does that mean that we don't come together for worship uh, on a Sunday? Uh, that we worship God with our lives and so we just go about our, our you know, daily lives outside of the church, no need to come and worship together as a church on Sundays. No, we still give God deliberate acts of worship where we consciously express our worship to Him. And the weekly worship service is also a biblical pattern of the early church that we are following. But how we worship is important. Not just that, how we prepare to worship is also important. If you look at 1 Kings, chapter 6 to chapter 7, the whole, air, the whole building of the temple, the whole process, huh? the value of the things that were dedicated to the building of the temple, the careful attention that was given to building this temple, very specific. No stones are to be brought there to be cut. They're all to be cut beforehand. And all the dimensions and everything, very, very exact. And the, the, the treasures that are brought is all very extravagant. If you remember, the people gave uh, to the building of the temple during David's time. They gave so cheerfully, they gave so generously that the priest had to tell them, stop, stop giving. Not, not enough space to store all these things already. Stop, we have enough, more than enough. Okay? And so the people gave so extravagantly towards the building of the temple. And it was just wasn't just in terms of the, the, these valuable materials that they were giving, but also in the skill and the quality of the work that was being put in in the building of this temple. At no point was the building of the temple done in a jinchai way. The Bible didn't say, you know, um, you know, if it becomes too difficult, never mind lah, cut corners a bit here and there. Right? There was no Israel bole attitude. It was very, very exact, very precise very giving the best for God. And so how Israel prepared to worship the Lord by the building of the temple revealed their heart, what kind of heart they had for God. So this is a point of reflection for us. Not looking at entire lives, just take our worship on Sunday as a specific example. What does how we worship God during our worship service, tell us about our heart for God. Our approach towards worship, how we prepare to worship God, reveals our heart. Now, I'm not just talking about worship enablers here. Okay? I'm talking about all of us, myself included, all of us as worshippers our approach towards worship, how we prepare to come before God in worship, 
reveals our heart. And so during worship service, what does how much we focus on uh, in terms of focusing on God reveal about our heart? Uh, what does uh, how much we mean when we sing and the words that we pray reveal about our heart? What does uh, how punctual we are week in and week out reveal about our heart? I'm not trying to make any of us feel guilty. My point is not to harp on these things and say, hey, you're naughty, uh, misbehaving. No. My point is for us to reflect on how our approach in worshipping God on Sunday affects our worship life beyond Sunday. Okay, let me say that again. Uh. Our approach of how we worship God on Sunday reflects and indicates how we worship God beyond Sunday. The Sunday worship service is never meant to be the only time that we worship God. Remember, living sacrifice, whole life worship. But the Sunday service, or at least the, the weekly worship service, is meant to prepare us to worship Him with the rest of our lives, for the rest of the week, as a living sacrifice. It is meant to be a Worship God, okay, now you are ready to continue worshipping Him for the rest of the week. That's why the benediction, go forth, go and you know, be blessed, go and be a blessing, go and love and serve God, you know, all that. And so what does the Sunday worship service tell you about your heart towards worshipping God for the rest of the week? Now let's look at the last P, the progression of God's presence. After Solomon had finally finished building and, and dedicating the temple to God, God appears a second time to him. Uh, the first time he appeared and said, you know, what, what, Luma uh, upper, right? And he said, okay, wisdom. Uh, this is the second time. This time he appears not asking him, Napa. Uh, he comes and he reestablishes the covenant with Solomon. It is the covenant of Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, the whole covenant that Israel is under. And the fulfillment of these blessings and curses are more specific for Solomon because it kind of incorporates the covenant of, uh, made to David also that he'll have a, uh, a descendant on the throne. Uh, and so one of the blessings is for Solomon's throne to be over Israel forever. But one of the curses specific here, one of the curses is for the destruction of the temple. For us, we read this already knowing the ending. We already know what will happen to the temple. It will be destroyed. The people of Israel will be exiled from their land and the temple will be destroyed. But God's presence doesn't disappear because of that. Because we also know the, the ending beyond that, right? Throughout the story of the Bible and the history of God's redemptive plan, we will go from God's presence among men dwelling in a physical building in the temple to His presence among men in the form of Jesus, right? God's presence among men, God with us, Emmanuel. We'll go from that to the presence of God among men 
among believers by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Today, God's temple is wherever the Holy Spirit is, and the Holy Spirit is in everyone who truly believes in Jesus. And so we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, one of the reasons Jesus came to earth as a man was to model how men should interact with God the Father. And even though Jesus was a Jew, he did worship God in a temple while it was still standing, but he also withdrew in solitude to spend time with the Father in prayer, presumably also in worship. And so, with the Holy Spirit in us, God's presence is wherever we acknowledge Him. So we must be very, very careful that we don't stay stuck thinking that God's presence is limited to a physical space or that He is only in one place at one time in an external sense. Now, it's been a while since I mentioned this, but I'll mention it again in case you have not heard this before. You recognize this verse? When two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Right? Now, very popular verse that we always hear quoted. This verse is not talking about God's presence in terms of prayer or other general church meetings. Okay? So let's read the whole passage. Remember how important context is. Huh? Let's read the whole passage. This is Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. So just uh, five verses earlier. Let's read it together. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Continuing to verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Continuing to verse 19 to 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where through two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, you hear a lot of verses that we usually associate with prayer, right? Now, the context of this passage is about church discipline. Church discipline. Okay? And the validity uh, of how human authority exercises that discipline on behalf of God. The authority is valid based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, so context, huh? it's about church discipline. I mentioned this because using verse 20 out of context, and we just say, you know, on its own, uh, two or three gather in my name that I'm with them, it affects our theology of God's presence. It's not just uh, something that we say, yes, it's true, two or three are gathered, God is present, yes, he's omnipresent. But 
it implies that God is absent if less than two or three are gathered in his name. Or that he is less powerful somehow if less than two or three are gathered in his name. No, we gather together for prayer. We gather together for other things in order to encourage one another, in order to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, all kinds of other good reasons, but not because God won't be there or he'll be less present if we are on our own. So this doesn't mean stop coming for corporate church uh, prayer meeting. Uh, okay? We come for other reasons. But God is present just as powerful even if we are on our own. But although I just talked about God being present when we are on our own, uh, there is another passage that talks about Him dwelling in many believers. And this one is in context. Huh? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Collectively as a church, so individually we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Huh? Collectively as a church, the gathering of believers, we are a dwelling place for God. So the church building is not God's temple. Okay? The sanctuary is not God's temple. Trinity Methodist Church is not God's temple. The church as a gathering of believers is where God is dwelling. How is that any different from us being God's temple individually? If God's temple is there, individual believer, then collectively come together as a church, how is it any different? Well, the context about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 is about Jews and Gentiles being united as one church by one Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Jews and Gentiles receive through faith in Jesus. So, the unity of the church is a clear sign of God's presence. Let me say that again. Huh? The unity of the church is a clear sign of God's presence. And the implication is that this unity in the church indicates that some within the church are not following that same one Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the same, one, only one Holy Spirit. He brings unity, not division to the body. So if there is unity in the church, praise the Lord. It affirms that we are all following the one Holy Spirit. God's presence is there. Right? I think Trinity Methodist Church is quite united. Okay, so praise the Lord. God's presence is here. Right? But if there is this unity not just the, the large congregation, but even within our smaller Christian communities. If there is disunity, it is a red flag. It's a red flag not just to point at everyone else and assume that they are not following the Holy Spirit. Eh? Must be this person, that person, this person, that person. It is a red flag for us to also examine ourselves to see if we are the ones who are not following the Spirit. One thing I've learned about being in Christian community with others, whether it's in church or at home with other believers, one thing I've learned is I cannot possibly be right all the time. It's impossible. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm 
definitely not perfect. I cannot be right all the time. And so as humbling and unpleasant as it is, if there is disunity in whatever Christian community I'm in, the, the larger body of the church, a small group, Christian family, Christian group of friends, if there is disunity, I must at least try to seriously examine myself to see how I might be contributing towards that disunity. It takes two hands to clap, huh? And I'm not always successful. I almost always feel like I'm right. <laughs> you can ask my wife. I always feel like I'm right, man. But I must at least try to examine and see how I am contributing to this unity. And if I do identify that I'm contributing to this unity, then I must set aside my pride so that I don't stand in the way of God being glorified through the unity of my church through the unity of my family, through the unity of my marriage, I must not stand in the way of God receiving glory through that unity. And so God is present and accessible to worship wherever we are individually, also as a church. In conclusion, if you... Sorry, not yet. Oh, actually, uh, okay, you want to take photo or whatever, now you do lah, okay? Now, if you remember, our theme for Christmas last year was the present of God's presence. And one of the questions that we asked you as a church was to share with each other within your small groups and your fellowship groups about how you intended to practice God's presence in a practical way, right? So I want to encourage you to continue asking each other that question. During our church staff meeting, uh, we've been holding one another accountable with this question. And you'll be surprised just how easy it is to forget about God's presence when we are not recognizing it, we are not thinking about it regularly. And so friends, I'd like us to know that we worship God where He is present. He is present with all believers at all times through the Holy Spirit. I'd like us to be a holy temple of the Holy Spirit. Worship Him together in unity as a church, but also worship Him individually through holy living. And do prepare well to worship Him. Let the Sunday worship service prepare you to be a living sacrifice for the rest of the week. Let's pray. Would you just come before the Lord now in humble reflection? Will you search your hearts as to what God might be saying to you today? And if upon reflection you find that your approach towards your worship life whether it's through patterns of behavior, whether it's through your attitude, or whether it's the decisions that you make, that they indicate a heart problem, would you respond to the Lord now? Would you ask for His forgiveness? Would you ask for the Holy Spirit to create in you a new heart, 
to renew a right spirit within you. Would you ask for the joy and peace that comes from knowing God? And for that joy and peace to flow into every area of your life. And if you tend to ignore God's presence for six days every week, would you also take the time to respond to Him? Would you confess and repent? Ask God for spiritual eyes to recognize His presence throughout the week. Ask Him for consciousness of being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come before You humbled before a holy God. We confess, Lord, that many times we have taken the sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to come into your presence so readily. We have taken that for granted many times. We have lost sight of your holiness. We have made worship about ourselves. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart of worship, a heart of worship that comes from being your children, loving you simply because you are our God. And so, Lord, in the attitudes of our hearts, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, would you renew us, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live in a way that pleases you as an act of whole life worship. Starting with Sunday, continuing on into the rest of the week. Thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you forgive our sins. Thank you that you keep us in your holy presence through the sacrifice of Jesus that we did not deserve. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some questions for us to reflect on and discuss within our small groups and families. Firstly, what are some ways that knowing God's presence with you at all times affects the way you live? Secondly, what does uh, one aspect or some aspects of your worship life indicate about your heart towards God? And thirdly, what is one way you have been trying to practice God's presence over the week? And again, I encourage you, uh, maybe ask each other this question number three uh, often and frequently, okay? I'll leave these questions with you to reflect on and discuss.